Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Decades later, the Kampong would trace it all back to this very hour, waves draining the light from the slim, hungry moon. Decades later, they would wonder what could have been had the Lees simply turned back, had some sickness come upon the father manning the outboard motor, or some screaming fit befallen the youngest forcing them to abandon the day's work and steer their small wooden craft home. This is J.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and today I'm talking to Rachel Hang about her gorgeous new novel, The Great Reclamation. It's 1941, and Singapore is controlled by the British, but now occupied by the Japanese, while World War II rages across the Pacific. Ah Boon is seven years old when he goes out fishing for the first time with his older brother and his father, whose livelihood depends on the daily catch. Ah Boon spots previously unnoticed islands that provide their largest catch ever as world powers collide, and the island begins its transformation into a modern society but it's ruled with an iron fist no matter who is in charge. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for joining me today. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel, were there really mysterious islands that were not previously mapped off the coast of Singapore? You know, not that I know of, but I think the world is mysterious in that way. Um, and, you know, as you allude to, that does appear in my book. I think there's so much that is unknown um, in, yeah, both geographically and also, you know, I, I guess emotionally um, and for a country, for a society that I think in in Singapore in particular, where in during colonial times, um, the, the search for knowledge and this kind of desire to like map the territory, to understand it, you know, was very... Um, kind of per- pervasive and almost violent in a way. Um, so I wanted to include those vanishing islands that were mysterious and that evaded this kind of governmental control. Uh, and that's why I'm there. Wow. What kind of research did you do in order to write The Great Reclamation? And how close to your own life, meaning your parents' lives, because it was their generation, how close were the events described in the book? Yeah, so um, I did a lot of research. I worked on maybe uh, about for about a year before even starting to write, just reading books and um, reaching out to scholars, historians, geographers, 
um, going into the archives and looking at some amazing old photographs, uh, newspaper clippings, government documents. So very fortunately, the National Archives of Singapore are available online, actually. So I could access them from the US where I'm currently based. And then every time I went home, I would try to set up in-person meetings and kind of visit the places that I was writing about um, just to have a sense of, you know, the atmosphere and like what it's what it's like, even though obviously it's changed massively. Um, and as for how much it resembles my own life or stories, you know, personal stories, um, so my grandmother was, I think, seven years old during World War II. So she would have been, it would have been my, ge- my grandmother's generation, actually, who lived through what Abun is living through in the novel. Um, and I, I don't think none of the stories are real. It's all fiction. You know, I made, I made them up. Um, but suddenly there are resemblances. So pieces of characters uh, come from people that I know or certain scenes or certain memories so there is um, a scene in the book, a recurring theme of Abun and his childhood best friend, who also becomes his romantic interest as the years go by. And they are running through the forest with these rubber seeds that they've picked up. Um, and then they rub them against brick walls and then they use it to sort of try to catch each other and burn their skin with the hot seeds. So that's something that I you know, would hear my mother talking about when I was younger. That was a game that she would play whenever she went out to visit her cousins in the more rural areas of Singapore. So little fragments like that do come from family members, but, but all the characters in the book are fictional. Okay. But the history is based on real history. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, you write in English, but... Uh, the language Abun's family s- speaks to each other is, uh, I'm unclear about it. When his mother, for example, says, this morning, the trip, how? What language are they speaking? What's going on? So in the book, so in reality, they would be speaking Hokkien, which is a dialect of Chinese. Um, and in the book, the way I've rendered it is I've written it as Singlish, which is a um, Creole that's spoken in Singapore. It's It's basically what modern day Singaporeans speak today that sounds that comes from English but is very very different from English and probably not understandable to a foreigner an outsider um, and it's a combination of you know the different languages that are spoken in Singapore so different dialects of Chinese you know Malay um, Tamil and English of course and then and it's it has a different grammatical structure it uses words from all the different languages um, and syntactically sounds quite different so what what it's so basically every character's speech um is rendered in singlish in the novel even though they probably would have been speaking whatever language their community spoke at the time so some are speaking hokkien some are speaking cantonese some are speaking bahasa malayu um and it's difficult to get all of that into a novel that's written in english um and so the singlish is sort of an approximation for that okay there are several cultures living in Singapore, even to this day. Abun imagines the original boat people, the Orang Naut, whom the Ang Mo's forced to leave. Can you explain a little bit more about who they were? Who are the Ang Mo's? They're important to the story, and you call them, quote, the translucent-skinned, light-eyed men who ruled the island of Nanyang and the rest of the Malayan territory. Mm-hmm. So this is written from the from a Chinese community's perspective, um, and Chinese people in Singapore were immigrants at the time. Um, Abun's own family would have settled, you know, sometime in the years before the book takes place. 
Um, and the Angmos are the British, essentially. But Angmo in local speak really just means um, redhead. So it used to refer to any white person. I Presumably it's like that because the first white people they met were redheaded. Uh, so that's kind of colloquial Hokkien for white person. Uh, and in the text, it's used to refer to the British. And the, the Orang Bao were the boat people, the indigenous communities that lived along the coast of Singapore and the islands around Singapore um, and Indonesia as well. And they were... Um, they, many of them were, were forcibly moved from the coast of Singapore by the British colonial administration up to Malaysia or to other parts of the um, the region um, for developmental reasons. So that's what that section is referring to. Okay. Abun and his family live in a kampong or a village on the southeast shore of Singapore. Can you talk about the um, the, the villages, the kampongs, and how important they are to society. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in the book, um, so Abun grows up in this small village, and the importance of that in the narrative is that this is the site of great change. So this is what, basically, this is what these are one of the four villages along the coast that's going to be completely transformed by a massive um, urban redevelopment project that involves reshaping the coastline by dumping sand into the sea and extending the coast, um, which is called land reclamation in Singapore, more commonly known as landfill in the US. Um, and so the kampong, when we when we meet Abun at the beginning of the book, is very, you know, it's idyllic, it's sort of untouched, it's in this rural area, um, and they live family-closed lives, even though they do go into the city, the wider city, to, to trade and to go to school and to do other things. Um, but for the most part, they are separate from the city um, and the more urbanized areas. And through the courts of the book, you see how, as history unfolds, um, different historical events begin to touch the kampong, right? First, you have World War II. So the Japanese invade Singapore. There's a great deal of suffering and sadness. And I won't go too much into that for, you know, for reasons of spoilers. Uh, and then later on, there is the fight for independence um, from the British and the local government that arises, that kind of takes power and starts to make changes on the island to, in order to create this modern city-state, independent country that they, they want to, you know, rule and want to lead into the future. Um, and so the kampong starts to face changes due to these wider political changes as well. And Abun, in a way, you know, in the beginning of the book, he's a little boy. He's also, his world is very small, right? His world is going out to sea, helping his mother drive fish, going to the local kampong school. And then slowly he start, his orbit widens. He starts to go into the city to go to middle school. Um, eventually he gets a job for, you know, Again, no spoilers, sorry, I should stop there. <laughs> and you have all the ways in which, you know, his world grows and changes, I think. And there's a parallel there, right, between Abun and the setting of the book. So, But we, we start in the small village and then we move out into the city. Um, and I often say, you know, it is a coming-of-age story, both for Abun as well as Singapore as a country. Um, and I think the Kampong Frini pointed that because you see the ways in which it's challenged um, and encroached upon and either, you know, survives or doesn't survive. Um, Abun loves Siokme from the minute he sees her as a seven-year-old sitting next to him in class. Um, as they grow, she's very passionate about China and hates the Angmos who rule the island. She also hates English-speaking Chinese people even more, which I, I didn't quite understand. Can you say more about 
Siok May and who she is? Yeah, so Siok May is the daughter of revolutionaries who have gone back to China to fight against the Japanese. Um, and she, because of her background, you know, she has this very uh, revolutionary fervor and is fiercely anti-colonialist um, and very much against the British. And that's why she has, you know, kind of, she views Chinese people who learn to speak English in a negative light because she sees it as essentially co-opting to the to the British, you know, and just becoming one of them instead of fighting against them. Um, and so Xiaomi is a character who's fiercely, fiercely idealistic, um, has very clear beliefs and fights for them, right, through the course of the book. And when she meets Abun, he's immediately drawn to that because he's a young, he's kind of a timid, shy boy. Um, he doesn't quite fit into the traditional roles of masculinity of the fishing community around him. So he has an older brother who's like stronger, he's smarter, you know, he does everything well. Abun, on the other hand, is afraid of the sea. He's uncomfortable with fishing. You know, he's very sensitive. Um, and so he's already slightly at odds at, with the world. Like he doesn't really know what his place in it is. He doesn't know who he is. So when he meets Siok Mei, you know, he's totally swept away from her. Um, by her because she's so fiercely herself. She believes what she believes with such fervor and such strength. And he's totally entranced by that kind of strength and power and idealism. Um, and you see, so from, as you mentioned, from the very first moment he meets her, you know, he's, he's totally transfixed by her and fascinated by this. Um, and the novel takes us through that. So the novel, in the novel, we meet them as young children in school where they become friends. And then follows them through their lives over the next 20 years. Um, and, for, you know, I, I mentioned coming of age earlier. It's a coming of age, not just of Abun, but also of Xiao Mei. Um, and I think so much of coming of age involves this loss of innocence in a way. And we find our place in the world through um, the people around us, not just, you know, we, we don't exist in a vacuum. It's kind of through our relationships and like romantic relationships being a really important aspect of growing up. Um, so for Abun, that really crystallizes in Xiao Mei and the ways in which their relationship waxes and wanes over time as their lives take different paths. Mm -hmm. Teacher Cha Chia is uh, he's kind of a tragic figure, almost represents somebody who cannot change, who cannot uh, understand progress, who who is uh, set in his ways. Can you say more about him? Yeah, he is, well, he is um, Xiao Mei's mentor. Um, and, you know, he's he's the teacher of the village school where Abun and Xiao Mei first meet. Um, and, you know, he he's an important figure because in a way he he helps bring them together because they, they meet in, in this village school and then they decide to go to school in the city later on together. And it is because of Teacher Chia that they have this opportunity and Teacher Chia kind of sees something in both of them and helps them to achieve that. Um, and so he, and he stays a really important mentor figure for Xiao Mei through the novel because she's an orphan, you know, she doesn't, her parents aren't around um, and she lives with relatives. There hasn't, there isn't really an adult figure who takes an interest in her the way that Teacher Chia does. Um, and so they remain very close until the end. Abun, on the other hand, is really really kind of influenced by Xiao Mei. So he's, he, you know, he has his own family. They have very different um, perspectives on teacher and chance belief. And again, what I wanted to get at with this is, you know, the ways in which the political was so personal. Um, and, you know, we don't come to our political beliefs through some, through just intellectual reasoning, right? We come through them through our experiences, who our families are, what our families believe. 
um, what the people around us believe, where we find love and acceptance and comfort, and you know where we where we don't. So for Siok Mei, Teacher Chia is very much that person, and for Abun, not so much so. Mm-hmm. What about Natalie? She's she's a little bit tragic, also. No, I love that you give everybody's backstory so that we know who they are. Can you say more about her? Yeah, well, Natalie is a, a um, she comes from a very different background. She is uh, English educated and of a middle class. She's she comes from a wealthier family and she eventually meets Abun. Um, actually, I think I'd rather not talk about this because this is a major spoiler. Um, this is okay. Maybe the book. No, don't tell us what she does, just yeah. who she is. That was perfect. That was great. Um, why did the Anmo's? blow up the causeway that joins Singapore to the peninsula during World War II. What why did they what was what was going on there and who were the Malay soldiers? Sorry, who were they? Yeah. Um I mean they were they were local soldiers. So they were fighting for they they were fighting against the Japanese invasion in World War II. Um so for those who are maybe less familiar with the Asian aspect, uh, what happened in Asia during World War II, the Japanese were invading Southeast Asia. And so the Malay soldiers were trying to defend their country against invading Japanese. Um, and uh, why the why the Angmos blew up the causeway? Well, because they felt that they were unable to hold back the Japanese forces. So they blew up the causeway. I mean, I'm no war, I'm no war uh, expert, so I don't know the, the like military reasons. Um, but it's a it's a it's a moment that I think is often described with great uh, kind of mm, sort of people didn't really believe that that would happen. You know, I think people believed that the British would. Or the British had always said that Singapore was a fortress and that the Japanese would never make it into Singapore. And so I think the moment where they blew up the causeway was a really significant one because people realized like, oh they actually can't defend us, right? And that this is actually going to happen, um, that there is going to be this foreign invasion um, that resulted in a lot of death and a lot of tragedy. I, I was a little confused about um, the Malay soldiers because it there were th- several different communities of people, the Chinese Hokkien's and the English-speaking Chinese and uh, the native so Malay would have been all of those people, whoever was uh, pulled into the army. Is that no, correct? Malays. So th- there is a Malay community. Um, it's a group. It's an ethnicity, essentially. So they were the ones who were fighting. Yeah, they were some of the ones who were fighting. There were other people fighting. There were Indian soldiers as well who came from India um, through the networks of colonialism. Um, but yeah, that, they they were one community that was part of the the local soldiers defending the island. And then uh, for those of us who aren't scholars in the field of East Asian studies, in 1945, so the war ends, Japan is defeated, but then the British come back to Singapore? How did that happen? And well, that was still a colonial, is still part of the empire. So mm-hmm. essentially that the British see it, I mean, it, it is controlled and owned in a way by the British. Um, the Japanese merely invaded briefly, occupied briefly, and then as soon as uh, they, they've lost the war, then it's seen as, oh, well, now this property is being returned to, to the, its rightful owner, right, which is the British. So Singapore continues being a colony until the local Singaporeans manage to win their independence. 
And this is the part that happens all over the world. So this is all going on, the fighting, the Japanese, the the, the end of the war, the horror and terror and fighting. And Abun's Ma says, what does it have to do with us? And I thought that was just wonderful. Yes. So many people felt that way everywhere. Because yeah. And I think people feel that today, too. You know, I think it's it's always a struggle, um, the fight with, because she now has a son who's participating in these political events. And from her point of view, she's like, well, we're just a poor fishing family. What do you expect me to do? Right. And there's this question of like, what is the role of the individual and what can the individual do in the face of such suffering um, and such great power? And so I think all the different characters in the book do have different responses to what is going on. And that's mm-hmm. the source of a lot of tension and conflict. So now a few years pass and now there are gamen and they're different from the Anmos. Not all of them were born on the island, but they're set to re- recreate the island in their own image, you write. They plant trees, they pick up trash, they build community centers. Why do so many people hate them? Um, I don't think people hate them. Um, I think some people really love them and really support them through the book, and that's how they manage to come to power. I think some people are get some people don't trust them suddenly. Uh, so Uncle is one such character. You have, I think Ma is suspicious of them, but then she is won over by the positive things that they're doing. Um, but I don't know. And then there is there's the and then the leftist faction. There is a lot of tension with that. Um, so the people that Xiaomei is working with are not supportive of the government. But I do think that they managed to win quite a lot of support. You know, and the book goes through this as well, um, that they do end up gaining the support of the people, which is how they rise to power. And who were they? They were the government, that the local government that came to power after the British left. So the, the PAP. Okay. Okay. Um so can you just bring all of us up to date? What's happening in Singapore today? Sorry, what do you mean? What's happening today? You, you talk about the um, that it's a vast field of concrete, that buildings everywhere, and it's a completely different place. You intimate that everything changed. So yeah, yeah. Yes, so many, many things <laughs> happening today. Suddenly, so. It's hard to sum up. Uh, it it is you know it, it's developed massively since that time, and that was a Singapore I grew up in. You know, I grew up in modern Singapore, so I never lived through any of this um, or saw Singapore this way. Um, but it is you know it, it's a it's a massively urbanized country. It's full of tall buildings and concrete highways, and it, in a way, it's the Singapore that I guess many people would have seen in movies, right? Um, that that the Americans might be more familiar with. Uh, and that it went, and this is part of the national narrative, that it went from being a really poor country that was a British colony into one of the wealthiest first world countries today. So there, there was this massive rise in in living standards in the course of one generation. But I think that's where my novel is trying to question that narrative of progress, that you know, as much as all of that did happen, undeniably, that there was something that was sacrificed or something that was lost by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Ah, it was just, just beautiful. I'm still mulling it over. Um, so what are you working on next, Rachel? 
I am working on a novel about, um, also historical, uh, but about the botanical gardens in Singapore in the 19th century and to do with the, um, the British enterprise of like collecting plants and the role of that plant collecting in colonial power and knowledge. Wow. That sounds wonderful. I'm interested. Okay. Keep me posted. It's very early, but hopefully we'll see. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure and I wish you the best of luck in the next novel. Thank you so much. It was lovely to be here. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Rachel Heng about her epic novel of 20th century Singapore, The Great Reclamation. Hope you have a great book to cuddle up with as always. Happy reading.